Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, October 25th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Mercedes brings us the latest on the investigation into the use of the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy protests in the nation's capital. Does the new British Prime Minister stand a better chance of outlasting a head of lettuce? We hop across the pond for reaction to Rishi Sanak being named the next PM with UK business owner and broadcaster Kenny James. Alberta's renewable energy program is set to produce a multi-million dollar windfall this year. What does this mean for the REP industry moving ahead and how could the surplus be used to have the most positive impact on the economy? We discuss with Blake Schaefer, economics professor from the University of Calgary. And finally, looking to escape the snow? Well, we catch up with the travel lady, Leslie Cater, for some tips on the hottest trends in travel, including some exciting new cruise options. The Canadian forces being down far greater than, you know, 10%. And instead of being at 70,000 people, the Canadian forces are operating probably somewhere at about 45,000 people. Wow. And out of that, there are a significant percentage of them who are not operationally deployable or capable. That was a clip from retired General Rick Hillier on this week's episode of the West Block. We'll get to that shortly, but we're going to say first of all, good morning to Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, how are you? Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, hey, let's talk first before we get to uh, the general about um, what's happening with the Emergencies Act and the inquiry into it. I know there's now calls, there are calls to, to get Premier Doug Ford to appear before the public inquiry, and that's not going over so well in Ontario. Yeah, well, in particular with, the, it seems, Doug Ford and his solicitor general at the time who don't really want to appear in front of this commission. Uh, but commissions have significant power uh, and they can summon you. So uh, you can fight the summons. We'll see where that goes. But his name keeps coming up over and over and over in testimony. It's like, you know, this presence that is in the room without him being there because so many documents or witnesses have witnessed the province um, saying it, it wasn't present, that um, they didn't show up at these tripartite meetings, that they didn't get responses from them. And insofar as determining whether or not um, the Emergencies Act needed to be invoked, that there was no other option, that it met the bar, part of what they have to look at is, it, was there was there another way? So it will be relevant in terms of whether or not the federal government needed to invoke it, um, were there things the province could have done that they refused to do or did not do or simply didn't respond on that contributed to the situation. And right now we're hearing this only uh, really coming out of the municipal level. They're blaming the province. But we're also seeing it on phone calls and documents where basically the federal government says that the provincial government is hiding um, so it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. I think at this point it's important to hear from Doug Ford uh, and from his Solicitor General because they're being characterized in a certain way in the documents and by the witnesses. What do they have to say about that? Um, because it'll it'll matter um, what their perspective was in, in this particular case because it's something that's had such a huge impact on Ottawa, huge impact you know, on people's rights across the country when you have the Emergencies Act invoked uh, in areas where it was brought in. So lots of pretty important questions there. Mm-hmm. And lots of questions. If, if you're following it, it seems to be, uh, you know, nonstop during the day. You can follow the coverage. Uh, what is the process ahead, though, Mercedes? When will we see some resolution or, or what are the steps ahead in the, in the coming days? Or is this going to go on for weeks? 
oh, it's going to go on for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> it's going to go on for several weeks. Um, it, we're looking at until like mid-November that this is going to continue, and that's planned. Uh, that's what the original witnesses, if we start adding um, witnesses from provinces, it could get longer. And, you know, this is this is a full-blown commission. So these are not like parliamentary hearings being held by MPs. This is on par with something like the Gomery Commission, which went for much longer. That went for years. Um, but what it really is, is whenever the federal government under the Emergencies Act invokes the act, it is required to hold a commission with an independent commissioner um, to determine really whether or not this was justified. And also, it's important in this case because it's the first time the Emergencies Act has actually been used to say, you know, was it invoked properly? What should it look like? What's the way forward? Um, so this is going to go on for quite some time. We have only heard from Ottawa municipal and police officials and uh, a couple of OPP witnesses, which is the Ontario Provincial Police. We still need to hear from the actual convoy organizers and from the federal government themselves, including people like RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, uh, Federal Cabinet Minister Marco Mendicino, Federal Cabinet Minister Bill Blair, the Prime Minister, all scheduled to testify about why they made the decisions that they did. Okay, so we've got a good year or two that we can continue talking about this with you. <laughs> well, hopefully sure. not that long. It's supposed <laughs> to wrap up in November, but we're not expecting the actual report to be delivered for several months after that. Okay, let's talk about that clip that we played coming in, retired General Rick Hillier. Why is Canada's military capability so low right now? What What is the issue within the Canadian military? Is it all of the problems and issues and, and bad press, frankly, that has been plaguing them over the past year or so? Well, it depends who you ask, um, and there's really a debate about this, but there's no question that they are having problems not only with recruitment, but with retention. And the chief of the defense staff said, look, we basically have to go down to non-essential tasks. Uh, for, we have to eliminate all non-essential tasks, um, which is pretty stunning when you think about this is a time when there is a land war in Europe. We do not have a situation where there are low potential security threats to Canada. Uh, but there have been years of no new money for defense. Um, whenever you're talking about a garrisoned military, which means they're not deploying, it has, um, and, and Rick Hillier talked about this on the show, less attraction to people wanting to join because it's not as clear what the purpose is. The equipment really um, is suffering, and again, that's going to affect attraction. And then you add on top of it these culture issues, which are not just sexual misconduct, but things like toxic leadership, things like a sense of rudderlessness, uh, Afghanistan being over and what happened in Afghanistan being demoralizing. And while the military will often characterize it just as, oh, we can't get people to serve, they don't like to talk about the other side of that, which is that a lot of people are releasing out of the ranks. That probably goes to more of the internal problems than just the problems in attracting people. Um, but it seems like for whatever reason, Canadians have not felt that they are compelled that they want to stay in the military or join the military. And that's creating a pretty serious situation in our defense capabilities. All right, let's switch gears. We know it's been tough to put food on the table, make ends meet as Canadians. Now we're hearing that we should buckle up and brace ourselves for 2023 and that the global economic storm is going to get worse before it gets better. What do you know about this, Mercedes? Yeah, so we had Ian Bremer on the show, who's the head of Eurasia Group, which is this big global risk analysis group. Um, and he said he believes that things are going to get worse in 2023. It is going to be a very difficult winter in Europe because Russia has turned off the taps on natural gas. So it's going to get very cold. People are going to have trouble heating their homes, running their businesses. Uh, and that there will also likely be some global food shortages. So not only are things going to be more expensive, it will be harder to even buy them. 
Um, and, and he had a really interesting perspective because, you know, some of your listeners will say Eurasia Group. Isn't that Jerry Butts, uh, the prime minister's former principal secretary? He does, in fact, work at Eurasia Group. Um, that Ian Bremmer would be his boss. He's much more senior in his company, and they're not a liberal or a conservative company. They advise all kinds of governments. But I found it very interesting for him to say that really the federal government needs to reconsider their position on Canadian oil and gas because the environment is very, very important and climate change is very, very important. But we are essentially moving into a crisis situation with what is happening in Europe and what is happening in Russia uh, and that they are going to have to look at it, as he pointed out, when the Green Party in Germany, which is a very green, green party, is talking about importing fracked energy resources with absolutely no qualms, we're operating in a very different environment, uh, and that's certainly very relevant for Alberta. And he said that the federal government basically has to do a better job of balancing between Alberta and Ontario in terms of priorities. Thanks for everything this morning. Always appreciate talking to you, Mercedes. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Of course, The West Block re-airs Sundays at 11 a.m. right here on 770 CHQR. This is an interesting factoid, Sue. Because we have a new prime minister in the UK, and the UK electing their youngest prime minister in 200 years. He's 15 years old. No, he's not. Uh, will the new PM, uh, PM fare better than his predecessor that lasted uh, less than two months? Joining us to discuss is UK broadcaster and business owner Kenny James. Good morning to you, Kenny. Morning, Andy. Uh, let's talk about this because... Uh, uh, Rishi Sunak, not a new name, uh, but Rishi is the new Prime Minister. What uh, Can you tell us about him? What do we know about this guy? He's, well, he, he was actually um, King Charles uh, asked him to about four hours ago in the UK, so he's been Prime Minister for about four hours now. Um, he was, of course, Chancellor before uh, under Boris Johnson in the previous government and uh, was the man that's widely regarded as having brought the... the uh, financial things into play throughout COVID. So we had various things over here, various financial instruments, and, and Rishi brought that. He's, he's a, an MP from a place called Richmond, which is in, in Yorkshire, in the north of the UK. And uh, previous to that, he wasn't very well known. He's a very wealthy man, uh, married to his wife and daughter, a very, very uh, extremely wealthy Indian businessman. Uh, so he's the first um, Hindi Prime Minister of the UK. And I think generally the country is looking forward to what he's got to put on the table after the past few weeks of uh, shenanigans. And how pleased are people that Rishi is now the new prime minister? And as you said, first prime minister of colour in the UK, I believe, ever, correct? So it, it was, it was all about yeah. the mistakes made by Liz Truss that got her tossed. She lasted, as we know, shorter time than the head of lettuce survived. But what kind of things are now people expecting from Rishi Sunak moving forward? I think there's a bit of confidence, Sue, in the fact that he was a, a steady pair of hands through the COVID crisis uh, when we introduced furlough over here, which was a, a government payment scheme to, to, to stay at home so they didn't have to travel into work. Uh, he's, he, he's a, he talks very well. He's a very good orator. His speech today uh, seems to have gone down very well. His opening speech as prime minister today. And he seems to have a very good fix on finance. So the markets, which went a bit haywire, after this trust and her, uh, her and Kwasi Kwarteng, who was her, her second pair of hands there, when they made their announcements about what they were going to do with the economy, uh, the markets went haywire over here. Interest rates went crazy. Uh, the pound dived against the dollar and lots of other foreign currencies. And I think people are generally looking to Rishi to be a steady pair of hands. 
Although her role was very, very much short-lived as Prime Minister, we are hearing that Liz Truss has chosen to accept the £115,000 per year pension for the rest of her life, which is an entitlement to the PM. How is that going over for somebody who served for such a short period? Um, as you can imagine, Andy, uh, a lot of people are incredulous with the fact that, uh, that she's chosen to accept that. She has every right to it because any prime minister in the UK, that's part of the, uh, the, the package when they leave the job. But because the job was, uh, was well, some people say not done, but, uh, but done in a very short space of time, a lot of people say that it's a bit of a joke that she's taking that money. No doubt. Uh, we know Rishi Sunak will appoint a cabinet soon, try to get that, a handle on that economic crisis. We will no doubt be checking in with you again, Kenny. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Kenny James, UK broadcaster and business owner. I just did the conversion, by the way. It's uh, £115,000 is $179,000 Canadian. Per year. Yeah, for the rest of your life. That's good work if you can get it. Alberta's renewable energy program is set to produce a multi-million dollar windfall. How did we get here and what impact will this money make? With some insight, we're joined this morning by Blake Schaefer, assistant professor in the Department of Economics and School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Let's talk about a multi-million dollar windfall. This really goes against the popular narrative that there simply isn't any money in renewables. So how did we get here? Yeah, you're right. I think when most people think about uh, certainly government renewable programs, they think big cost to taxpayers because there's definitely been some history of that. Uh, in this latest round, when the government, I think it was back in 2016, put out a um, program to increase the amount of renewables on our grid, what they did is they offered guaranteed price contracts and they made people compete for them. And that competition really drove down the price. So they ended up uh, offering contracts around three and a half cents per kilowatt hour, which is quite low relative to anything else on the grid. That, and now that prices are also higher, means that those contracts are paying out to the government. So the way it works is they they settle the difference between the contract price and what the market price ends up being. Mm. If it had been lower, the government would have been supporting these these, um, developers, these wind projects. Instead, prices have been higher, so it's the projects themselves that have to pay out the government. And in total, it's been about $100 million in payments to the government. Okay, so it's not quite oil money, Professor Schaefer, but it is money. Any idea how the windfall will be used or invested by the government? Well, so no, it, it, uh, right now it just, it's handled by the Alberta Electric System Operator, the grid operator, and it flow, the money, all the money flows back to the Department of Energy, to Alberta Energy. And you can see it if you dig into the... the uh, annual reports of that department, you see it come up as a sort of a nondescript line item, just really flowing into general revenue at this point. So there's nothing earmarked specifically for these funds. It just you know, helps our budget position overall. Uh, in, in that paper that we just put out today, we suggest a use for it because, as we note, you know, part of the reason for this windfall is the fact that prices are high. And so, you know, while it's it's good for making money in these contracts, it's also the same high prices that everyone is facing and uh, and it's hard for many folks to pay the bills. So allocating this towards a bill uh, assistance program, something that's very common in pretty much every other province in Canada, but we don't have a, a government run one here. So for those who are most at risk of not being able to have, pay their bill and 
you know, put on a load limiter or even at risk of having their power cut off, that's where potentially these funds could be directed. So while the high prices are there, while these contracts are making money, uh, we could be supporting those who are having a hardship facing the high prices. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. It's always interesting to me when there's a change in government. You know, the new incoming government usually will kind of uh, remove a lot of the programs that were put in place before they got there. This clearly one that was put in by the NDP government back in 2016. So it, as much as it was an NDP program, it seems to be one that just kind of does its thing and, and doesn't really need to be touched. Is it something that we can depend on moving forward? Should prices stay pretty decent? Yeah, I mean, if prices stay up here, it'll continue to make money. Of course, prices have been flow, so I, I wouldn't be surprised for this to come back down to earth. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was put in place in the previous government, but these are 20-year contracts, and so they'll continue to pay out on these contracts over that time period. Uh, as you know, when the government changed, the new government didn't didn't cancel the existing contracts. They let those continue, and that we should be thankful, I suppose, since it's made us so much money. Uh, but they did cancel anything going forward. But what the industry showed is they actually didn't need those anymore because private entities stepped up and said, hey, I'll sign up for those contracts. Mm-hmm. So companies like Amazon or even TransCanada, they stepped up. And you can kind of see why. They're, the people owning these contracts are making money. Mm-hmm. So the government stepped away and then private companies stepped in and, and they're the ones reaping benefits off of future renewable development. Can we look at any other examples across the country or maybe across the globe where a government facilitated REP uh, is making money? And do we have any examples of what they're doing with said money? Yeah. Yeah. So actually in Europe right now, it's really interesting. You know, there's wild prices, obviously, for, for power and gas over there. But there, there's a mix. Some countries, so I believe the UK for offshore wind and, and Denmark, have a very similar program to what Alberta did. We call these two-sided contracts for differences. So basically, if the prices are, end up being low, the government supports the projects. If the prices are high, the projects uh, give that benefit, that windfall back to the government. So very similar. So those ones are benefiting. Other countries, I believe Germany's in this case, I think Spain, I have to brush up on which countries did which, they did what's called a one-sided so they basically guaranteed a floor and said, we don't need a share in the gains. You know, that, that's not something we're interested in. You get the gains, but we'll guarantee you a floor to support your development. And so those that did the one-sided versus two-sided, I think, are kicking themselves right now in Europe, given how high energy prices are. Thanks so much for the discussion this morning. Blake, appreciate your time. You betcha. Thank you. Blake Schaefer, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics and School of Public Policy at the U of C. Looking to escape... Perhaps the snow and the cold weather. The travel lady is joining us with some tips on the hottest destinations and travel in general. She is Leslie Cater, the travel lady. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Sue. How are you this morning? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure you remember that music, Miami Vice. We know you were at a conference in Miami, a big North America-wide travel conference. Good Mm -hmm. news coming out of this conference, you thought. Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, the atmosphere was electric. It was very optimistic. Um, People are reporting record sales. You know, 2019 was a fantastic year for travel, and 2022 is surpassing that. So it seems like all that time when we were locked down and couldn't go anywhere, now everybody's making the best bet, and everybody wants to travel at the same time. Everybody wants to travel, but I, I think that, you know, for in my case, for example, I've looked at travel and I've done bits and pieces over the past year. Prices have still been sky high. Are we going to see some adjustments anytime soon, Leslie? Well, you know, it's the old supply and demand 
uh, story, and I agree with you. I have seen airfare prices uh, quite high, actually, at the moment. So I think if you're wanting to travel, you have to uh, book well in advance to take advantage of any kind of seat sales that you can find. And yes, my flights were packed all the way down Mm. to Miami, and that's probably be the same on the way home. Where are people wanting to go? Is it more exotic places right now? I I know you were talking a little bit about Saudi Arabia. Like, is that somewhere? Because I've always, as a female, thought, I'm not going there. Why would I travel to that country? Well, that's exactly, I think, there was quite a bit of surprise. Saudi was at our conference, the tourism board, and they are making a big push in North America. Um, Now, the the, uh, video that they showed us of, some of the hotels that they're building, it looks like they want to rival Dubai or Maldives. And, uh, you know, the the Red Sea diving is incredible, the deserts, the mountains. But, of course, you know, the big question was, in my mind, with the first presentation, well, hang on a minute, how do we Western women get Mm -hmm. to travel there? And then somebody else came up on the stage and they said, just to rectify some things here, information, we have been working on women's rights. Up until 2019, a woman wasn't allowed to drive a car. Now they can. And they've also removed the requirement for head coverings. So you don't have to do that. And, you know, those are two great strides. Uh, I think people are still kind of looking at Saudi thinking, I don't know, do Mm -hmm. I want to support this country? And in fact, a, a few women at that conference actually got up and walked out. They didn't want to listen to the presentation. Their feelings are strong. Very interesting. Our feelings are strong when it comes to all things travel. We could talk to you all day, especially with these colder temperatures. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Um, and we can dream. I will carry your luggage yes. anywhere you, you need to go, Leslie. <laughs> that's a deal, Sue. Hearing deal. some sounds coming out of your suitcase. Oh, that's studio. Uh, thank you so much, Leslie, and have a great Tuesday. Thank you so much. She is the travel lady, Leslie Cater. You can find out what she does online at thetravellady.ca.